Hey, what's up, guys? And welcome to episode 93 of Talk 4, the quickfire podcast where we ask four great questions to unique and interesting people. Behind the mic today is your host, Louis Scoopian. That's me. And let me introduce our beyond just incredible guest for today, Nick Lavery. He's going to be answering our questions today. Nick, welcome aboard the Talk 4 podcast, man. Please just say hi to the fine people listening and just give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do. And then we're going to shoot some wicked questions your way, brother. Right on, Louis. I appreciate the time, man. Uh, yeah, you know, my name is Nick Lavery. I'm on active duty, Green Beret, United States Army Special Forces. I'm also founder CEO of Precision Components, which is a training and consulting company. Uh, and most importantly, proud father to two young boys uh, and an extremely lucky husband to my amazing wife. And uh, yeah, man, just excited to spend some time and uh, and talk about some things with you. Awesome. Uh, I'm so, so glad to have you here. You know, I, I mean, you can only say that you are just, you know, the epitome of an inspiration. I can't wait to dig into to your story and share this with my avid listeners. So question one, um, I'd just like to go into the backstory. So we see you where you are today doing this incredible stuff. I'd just like to hear how it all started. So tell me about your backstory then. When did you join the military? What motivated you to join? And walk me through your career path to becoming a Green Beret, please. Yeah, so kind of the condensed version, Louis, is I began looking at the military as an option when I was in high school. And the only thing that prevented that from happening really was I started getting recruited to play football in college. So that's the route that I went. I was a horrible academic. I did the bare minimum. I really disliked school, but I was decent at athletics. Man, I really I really did well in football enough to, to get looked at and recruited. So I went to school for that. And then my sophomore year of college, I had just turned 19 years old, was 9-11. And that really is, is the reason why I decided to enter the military. I struggled to stay in school. At that point, I was ready to drop out and enlist into the military because I knew what we were about to get into, and I was really angry about what happened. Ultimately, I decided to listen to some friends and some mentors and some family. I stayed in school. I finished playing ball. I grinded out my degree, and it's now 2006, and we're surging in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So not only is the game still being played, but we as a nation are doubling and even tripling down across multiple conflicts. So it was at that point that I said, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and, and get into this game. You know, I knew I wanted to go into special operations. I felt like with my athletic background, that's where I could be best utilized. And really more than that, I wanted to make as much of an impact as a single person can make. This was not intended to be a career for me or, or a profession or a lifestyle. This was, I was going to come in, get to the tip of the spear, kick some ass, get some justice, and then get out and figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. That was kind of the game plan. Ultimately decided to go the route of the Army Special Forces. And after you know a little over two years of training was when I became a Green Beret, began going to work as a team guy. And it was really on my first trip into Afghanistan that is where things changed for me. And really it's where I fell in love with this business and it became more than a job or a lily pad to jump off of to whatever the next thing would be. It became deeply part of who I am. And at that point is really where it became a lifestyle. 
Mm, absolutely. Well, hell of a backstory, dude. Um, so, you know, we, we look at what we see today and we see so much inspiration in what you do, but obviously that comes from a place of adversity. And in my experience, we're at, like I mentioned at the beginning, 93 episodes in now. And from what I've heard from the people who listen to the show and also from just yeah, a personal standpoint, the, the it's the conversations where people who've come up from adversity and just kicked its butt, like those are the conversations that just fire me up every day to keep going, keep 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 smashing it basically i think that's been the same for the listeners so um obviously like i mentioned some of these stories have really had the biggest impact on people and i'd just love to hear your one so i was wondering if you could please uh recount to us the story of what happened in 2013 when you were injured and just the initial hours after that attack yeah so on my third trip into afghanistan which began in the fall of 2012 and extended into march of 2013 I would be wounded in combat on three separate occasions. First time, took some grenade shrapnel to the back of my shoulder. Okay, fine. Not a big deal. About six weeks later, I took an AK-47 round of the face. Obviously, sounds a lot worse than it was. In comparison to what was going on around me at the times of those injuries, a scratch, you know, flesh wound. A lot of my guys were were seriously wounded. Uh, So it really wasn't anything that couldn't be addressed relatively quickly and I was right back to work and then comes March of 2013 we had been there five and a half months we were set to go home in a couple weeks and my team and I fell victim to what we refer to as a green on blue which is kind of a fancy way of saying an inside attack meaning that a guy that we had been working with in this case it was a member of the Afghan National Police Force immediately prior to us going out onto an operation climbed up on the back of a Ford Ranger pickup truck and began unloading a belt-fed machine gun into me and my friends from about 25 or so feet away. This would be considered the largest insider attack that we know of. There were 12 Americans as casualties, three of which would be killed, and another 10 or so Afghan casualties killed or wounded. So a mass cow scenario, and this was the initiation of a complex ambush. So this was very much pre-coordinated, pre-planned, This guy would initiate, and then what we didn't realize at the time was there were about 25 or 30 enemy fighters that had our camp almost entirely surrounded, and they all began lobbing rockets and machine gun, you know, into our compound. So it became quite a quite a rough day at the office. Most of the damage to me was done to my right leg. I took estimated anywhere from four to six rounds to my right leg that just absolutely decimated it. It chewed it to shreds shattered my my FEMA into like 30 or so pieces. It severed my femoral artery. I really should have died that day, Louis. There actually, there really isn't a medical explanation as to how I was able to survive. I ultimately, I treated myself uh, initially with a series of tourniquets and with what is known as an internal pressure dressing, which is as bad or as difficult to do as it sounds. Uh, I got extremely lucky. I had amazing training from my medics that taught me what to do. And I really just did what they had told me to do. And I got extremely lucky and some would argue a miracle uh, for me to be able to stay alive. I was on the battlefield over an hour and a half. Eventually I was medevaced out, you know, and then fast forward just a little bit and I'd end up at Walter Reed. I'd spend a year there. And then that's kind of where the the progress and the real work kind of began. Oh my god, dude, that is just insane. Uh, I'm wow. 
I mean, what what I can say from what I've experienced on the podcast as well with other people who've had experiences like not obviously not like that, but things that were terrible that happened to them was that it's ringing a little bit true now that some of these people do often quite hear that they will never walk again or they're never going to have this again or they're never going to be able to do this again. And I, I know a few of these people who just completely just t- took a dump on their front yard with that statement. So you say there that there was no medical explanation for why you're still alive. I'd love to know why do you think that you're still alive? What 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 is your take on on that? Then no medical side to it. Just what what do you think got you through that and 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 kept you going? Yeah, I mean, it t- it took me a while. It's a great question. It, it took me a while to kind of wrestle with it. You know, I was told from the onset that I should be dead, and I, I heard that so often that I kind of just became numb to it. Like, okay, cool. You know, obviously, I got a little lucky. It wasn't, you know, for years later and the power of the internet and social media, the world's gotten really small and you can kind of connect to anybody nowadays relatively easily. And I began making connections with other people that were there at the time, years later. And these include trauma surgeons and medics and anesthesiologists, like the actual people that were treating me at different phases of this entire process. So I started getting more granular scientific mathematical detailed information about what they experienced and what they witnessed and once i stopped putting all these pieces together and, and i'm a, I'm a scientific individual i'm extremely analytical uh, there's got to be like one plus one is going to equal two i just got to figure out the equation getting some of this information down to the detail meaning what my platelet count was in my body what my respiration was these these numbers that these doctors have, they go against what we know to be biological and medical science. They they violate a lot of these principles. And I would be talking to these doctors saying, well, doc, how can you explain how I survived? And I got the, almost the same exact answer verbatim from many of them. And it's, Nick, man, listen, there is no scientific explanation as to how you're alive. There, there isn't one. And I know you want one, but one doesn't exist. This this breaks a lot of our protocols that we teach in med school today. In fact, this is a case study that is being studied through med schools across the country as an anomaly. And so to answer your question, uh, I began turning to faith, which is something that I've grown a stronger relationship with over time. Um, because as analytical as I am and as science-based as I am, there is no solution to that. So I simply choose to believe that there was some sort of intervention from a higher power and why, which is part of your question. I choose to believe that I remained on this planet as a living human uh, because there's something that I still need to do. There's a reason for it. And I owe it to a whole lot of people and, or the universe, higher power, God use the term that you choose I owe it to a lot of people and or entities to live that truth forward and spend every day attempting to repay that debt. Wow. I mean, that is just so powerful. And it's it's evidently clear as well that that wasn't just a strike one thing. It wasn't like you just, you're alive and that was it. 
you defied odds not just once but twice <laughs> because you got back into the special operations unit so um talk to me about this and so you're being faced with the option of a medical discharge you refuse it <laughs> can you tell me what your thought process is there or was there why you didn't change what you were doing and what it took for you to get back to operating at the highest level i mean it's just it it, it baffles me it really does yeah, man. So my decision to return back to doing what I do, that was made for me when I was in the intensive care unit at Walter Reed, still in critical condition and going through multiple surgeries a week. I decided then what I was going to do. I'm going back to doing what I do. I hadn't a clue as to how, but my mind was made then. It was actually one of the easier decisions I've ever really had to make because at that point in my life and in my career, I truly believed as I do today that I was put on this earth to to do something. I was I was put on this planet to be a warrior and to dedicate myself to a society. And I just know that that's a huge part of who I am. And I just simply couldn't imagine, nor would I accept anything other than that. So that was quite simple for me to make that decision. And then like with most challenging choices that we make, you, you get a glimpse of what that's really going to look like in our three-dimensional reality. It's easy to say, you know, I'm going to play football on Sundays as a teenager, and then you start to get a taste of just how hard that's going to be, and it's at that point that most will, you know, will off ramp and, and find a find a reason or find something else to do because it's just it's incredibly difficult, and it defies the odds of that type of success. And I met those exact same roadblocks and hurdles throughout my journey. You know, no one around me, including people who I love and respect, thought that what I had set my sights on was possible. In fact, most didn't even think it was practical. You know, it had never been done before. So like anything that's never been done before, it's typically met with a lot of questions and a whole lot of doubt and a lot of concern and all these things. You know, so I had to get really comfortable in kind of this isolated mentality where I could respect a, a different opinion of what I believe to be possible. I could respect it and I could appreciate it. In fact, I could learn from it. But that didn't mean that I, that I agreed with you. And that was okay. And we could have opposing perspectives. I'm, I'm that confident in what I'm doing is the right thing to do. And it's a righteous mission worth pursuing. So I had to get real comfortable in kind of this isolated mentality, even though I was surrounded by amazing people who I relied on daily to help me and support me and enable me and all these things. So once I got back to my unit after a year at the hospital, uh, I say I turned down a medical retirement, which is true, but it was really more of, a, of an administrative street fight that I found myself in because the army really did try to have me forced out as a medical retiree. And I just had to refuse that. And, you know, I had to take a lot of risk and burn a couple relationship bridges and circumvent some chain of command and just keep knocking down doors to, to get the answer that I knew I needed, which eventually I did. That took eight months. And during that time, I was working as an instructor. Once the process was complete and I was allowed to stay on active duty, then I made it known to my leadership that I wanted to go back to the team. And I had been voicing this now for you know a year and a half since the, since the time that I was wounded. And now it was like kind of getting real for some people. Like some of my leaders and superiors were like, okay, Nick's like actually going to take a run at this. you know. But I give him a lot of credit. Uh, and God bless them because they actually did give me the opportunity to demonstrate my ability to return back to that kind of a profession. 
And, man, they threw the kitchen sink at me. I mean, my chain of command, my leadership, they evaluated me on everything that you could imagine, probably some things that you can't even imagine. It ended up being about 12 weeks of different assessments and tests. Usually I take anywhere from two to four a week and just rapid fire, boom, 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 until I got done with my last one. And at the conclusion of that, I was given the green light. You know, I returned back to the same team I was on when I was wounded and it was about six, seven weeks later, we were back in Afghanistan conducting full spectrum combat operations. <laughs> I mean, that, that is just ridiculous. Like, I mean, I mean, to me listening to that, it just sounds insane. So a bit, bit of trivia then. Um, so lo- looking at you, I- I'm over here and let's just put it this way. I, I go to the gym probably like five, six, six, seven times a week or something. I've trained in sports since I was about four I feel I feel quite big and I'm looking at you right now and your shoulders are barely fitting in the frame. Your voice is deep, man. And this backstory you have is insane. Now, I just want to know what what part of all of this spectrum of just toughness and stuff gave you the nickname, the machine. And where did where did that where did that stick into place? <laughs> it's a, it, I'm glad you asked, man, because there's actually there's a lot more to the story that I'd, I'd like to add. Um, and the short answer to the question is when I first started deploying again as an, as an amputee, first started in Afghanistan in 2015 was my first trip as a one-legged guy. It didn't take long before a lot of the villagers and the partner force we were working with. And a lot of the locals began to refer to me as Palawane Moshina, which is Dari for the machine fighter. And that's just how they interpreted me. That's just what they called me. And it got to a point where it spread so vast that we would roll into a village that we had never been in before, you know, get out of the trucks, start doing our thing. And like kids would start running up to us and they would be screaming, Palawana Machina, Palawana Machina. Like they, the, like, so word had traveled that there was this big robot like looking dude, like bombing around the country. <laughs> and so then my teammates, of course, started like giving me shit about it. And they're like, oh, it's the machine. Like no one actually called me that outside of the locals in Afghanistan. But it was kind of funny. The next year, 2016, my team and I were deployed uh, to Eastern Africa. And the same exact thing happened. So we're an entirely different continent. And within just a few weeks, the locals began referring to me as machine, which is just their version of the word cyborg. So it's like two different countries, two different continents, same thing. And now it kind of stuck. And still, none of my teammates or friends have ever referred to me as that, ever. It's really never been a nickname for me other than when I'd been in these operational environments. But that's kind of the genesis of it. But what it's turned into... I mean, the machine now is its own brand and it's it's part of my company and my team and I, and we refer to ourselves as team machine, because when you think about what a machine is, a machine is a series of components. It's a whole bunch of pieces that get put together. And when they're put together correctly and they have that kind of synergy and connectiveness about them, that's what creates the machine. The machine is not a single entity. It's a whole bunch of entities brought together. So when you describe that, you're describing a team. So the brand machine is synonymous with team. And not only that, but it represents me as quote, the machine. While I am a single human, even though you and I are having this conversation right now, Louis one-on-one, there are hundreds of people sitting right here alongside me that you just can't see that 
I would not be here talking to you had not it not been for them. So even as I was depicted as this singular entity known as, quote, the machine, there were countless people that I relied on that got me to that place and continued to push me forward. So while the machine idea and kind of joke and nickname began as me as a person, you know, downrange doing my job, it's morphed into what I believe to be the true power. And that is the power of a team. So true. So, so, so true. And I, I think there's a, there's a definitely a beauty to that statement as well, because you look at you and you're, you're this image of the brand in a sense, but then you take obviously what goes on behind the scenes, like you've just described. And it's so true. Like the team makes the thing, the dream in a sense, doesn't it? It's so important to have a team of people who fill you, fill all of those things that, and that you need to do to become this person and, and maintain this person so you're, you're right and that's that is truly uh exactly the same i imagine in the special operations units too but like you said you've got this brand now something interesting i'd like i'd like to touch on here as well is you're still active duty you're still in the special operations unit so how how do you navigate doing all this public outreach stuff whilst still doing that because my interpretation is that when people are in the special operations unit it's very kind of uh, a tight kept secret in a sense obviously and most of the people i've spoken to before are, are ex kind of navy seals and ex military people so um how do you navigate that with the chain of command and and doing all the stuff that you do yeah it's a good question so you know about a year ago uh, actually a little over a year now was where i made a transition off of the teams and into the position that i have now so now i sit at the company level leadership position as a company operations warrant officer. So you have the detachments and then above that you have the company level. And so that's where I currently sit now. And my company that I'm part of, we oversee the advanced training uh, within my unit. So I not only left the team life as a team guy, but I also left operations. And now I'm in a leadership position within the training sphere. So that catalyst, that became a really a catalyst for me and my entrepreneurial team to accelerate a little bit with some of these other things that we do because it opened up that bandwidth. Life on the teams is crazy. It's it's nonstop. It's around the clock. It's odd hours. Sometimes you don't even go into work till 5 p.m. because you're going to be out till 6 a.m. You know, so it's crazy. The last coming up on, you know, 14, 16 months me making that professional move to this position I'm in now really opened up a considerable opportunity for me to invest more time and energy you know, outside of my work in uniform. So it, it's difficult because I got to manage my calendar very deliberately, but I can do a lot of my army work from just about anywhere. And while 2020 was a complete and total pain in the ass for everybody, you know, we all learned that you can be effective remotely. It doesn't entirely replace being in the same place with people. Like proximity does have value, but we learned that you can be productive. And you don't have to be glued to a specific spot at a specific time always. So we all kind of learned through that. And that's, you know, the technology and the processes that a lot of us still leverage today. I'm no different. So it is difficult. Um, I travel a lot for work as well as for my own work. So it's just, it's a balance and it's just deliberate calendar management and time prioritization is really how it's. 
Guys, really quick announcement here. We'll get you straight back to the podcast in just a second, but wanted to let you know that I have made a very special t-shirt design for this episode specifically based around the quiet professional as stated by Nick Lavery towards the end of the podcast. Absolutely fantastic quotes, and I've made a really great design for this. The t-shirts are insane quality, and they're available on my website. So guys, if you got something special from this episode, fantastic bit of advice, some motivation, or great bright idea, or you just want to support the show, then please do grab one of these t-shirts or maybe a hoodie or something as well. Like I said, link in bio and you should be able to see it on the screen right now. Guys, thank you and let's get you back over to the awesome podcast. Cheers. Absolutely. Well, I think that must be the case for pretty much any any walk of life really too. Um, but so just something else that interests me as well is obviously in the teams, you've got a, a family feel. 100% from the conversations I've had before, people have this family feel and it is truly a brotherhood as well. Um, when you were getting back into the team, do you feel like there was any kind of hesitation and doubt towards you making this decision and, or, or was that team just steadfast in their support and belief? Um, you know, how, how did that feel going back in there for the first time to you? It, it's a, it's an awesome question. You know, when I first began pursuing getting back to the teams, which started when I was in the hospital, it was it was about me getting back to doing what I felt I needed to do, me getting back to doing what I love. And I was laser focused on this, completely obsessed, all in, burn the boats, no plan B, just all the chips under the table. And I leveraged that drive for, for months. And it really wasn't until I got back to my unit, I was granted the approval to stay on active duty, and I began going through this evaluation process that I popped up in the middle of the night in like this cold sweat. And I felt like I was dying. Like my heart was pounding. And I, I re- literally thought I was on the verge of death. And I realized in that moment that I was trying to go back to a team. And I really hadn't thought about that until that point. And I'm, I'm, I'm making progress, right? I got all this momentum. I'm extremely confident. I'm like, there is nothing that these people can throw at me that I won't be able to do. I'm going to make this happen. And then I'm smashed in the face like a truck drove into me with, oh, my gosh, I'm going back to a team of guys who I have an enormous amount of love and respect for. Like, do they even want me back? I hadn't even asked them. And I'm seeing these guys, you know, just about every day at work. We're in the gym together. We're training. I felt horrible about myself, Louie. I felt terrible, like just the biggest piece of shit that I had not even thought about them. So I went into work. The next day, and I bombed into their team room because I've been working as an instructor. They're working as as team guys. I walk into the team room and I'm like, guys, I need five minutes. And we sit down and I said, dude, first off, I I'm incredibly sorry that it's taken me this long to have this conversation with you guys. I hadn't even thought of it. But have you guys talked about this? Have you guys discussed this? Because I'm making progress over here. Like, I don't know if this is actually going to happen, but I continue to make wins and I'm progressing and have you guys considered what it is that I am trying to do here and you know they were like listen bro we've talked about this dozens of times and the answer is we don't know if this is going to work but what we do know is we want to be the ones to decide if this will work or not so if you're able to make it back here we will be the first to tell you to your face candidly blunt no bullshit Hey man, we gave it a shot and and this isn't going to work. And I knew that about them. There really is no room for anything other than blunt force honesty 
because there's a there's a standard that will be maintained no matter what and there's there's no exceptions to that which i know and i respect so what it what that allowed me to do was remain target fixated on the things that i needed to do and my reasons for wanting to do it and it really accelerated that because now i was envisioning you know my teammate's son rather than me having this glorifying moment getting back into afghanistan with my arms over my head when i was going into that third training session of the day and i was exhausted and beat up and all the excuses are all sounding extremely convincing i was thinking about my teammates and their families and it just brought a whole nother surge of energy for me to take advantage of and i i could place my trust in them to be objective and to be logical because it was such an emotional thing for me and emotion and logic oftentimes contradict each other it's really difficult to be logical when you're highly emotional and this was very emotional to me this was very personal so i was able to place my trust in my friends and my teammates that they would maintain that objective look and i knew they would so once i did make it back there you know we of course have this little short celebration it was incredibly short cuz we had a whole lot of work to do we we're about to go game on in like six, seven weeks. So uh, we had that moment. I was now at the bottom of a whole new mountain that I had to start to climb, but I was able to do that with a high degree of confidence because I knew that my friends and teammates would hold me accountable. They would tell me the truth. And all I needed to do was focus everything on my discipline, my sacrifice, my work ethic, my productivity, and and just keep going. Who ya? Who you are, man? That's some crazy stuff right there. But absolutely true. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm in awe. It's fantastic to see. I think the last thing that I really want to ask you now is that you're someone who's gone through, obviously, the most extreme of every anything you can go through really in life. So, um, but I think that some of the mentality practices you've used in your recovery are very applicable to people listening who have their own issues too in life. Yeah, life throws curveballs all the time, man. Uh, when you're faced with something that feels impossible to beat, is getting you down or causes you a stress or, or problems even, what would be the best tactical approach to handle that? And what should your mental and emotional approach be also just for people listening who might be going through their own kind of stuff? Dude, so many, so many things come to mind. You know, I, me and my team, we teach entire curriculums on this. You and I could talk for hours on this exact thing. Uh, the, the the first thing that came to mind, man, when you just asked me that, is a statement that I use, and that is, the size of the struggle is commensurate with the size of the goal, which means that they're equal. So while we would maybe prefer to have this massive goal, this massive ambition, and there to be this very small, tiny struggle along the way, that just doesn't exist. So if you choose to adopt that truth, then what that means is when you are feeling the struggle, that is an indicator that you are on a path worthwhile, that you are on a path of righteousness. And that's an opportunity to recognize it for one and then lean into that discomfort because right there, the game's being played and what it's a very short game to play. You have maybe five, 10 seconds to play it and choose your move. Most, this is just average. This is just math. Most people, when they feel that will find a reason, i.e. an excuse to off ramp. And of course, we're going to be enabled by a whole lot of very convincing justifications as to why it's in our best interest to avoid this and perhaps never come back to it again. 
And it's going to sound very convincing. And all that's done on purpose by a means to protect our emotional wellness. What the unusual people will do, what the unorthodox people will do is lean into it and say, no, now, right now is the game, the game is being played. And I'm going to lean into this struggle because on the backside of that is growth. Now, no one's batting a thousand. I don't care how motivated you are or how captivating of a caption you put underneath an Instagram post. No one's batting a thousand. And I'm not suggesting you need to. I certainly do not. I, I miss and fail consistently. But the recognition that in those moments of struggle and adversity, you are now clocking in and you got about five, 10 seconds to decide what you want to do. Most off-ramp, now's the time to lean in. And if you do that with enough consistency, you start to see the value of the struggle and the discomfort. And then I'll tell you, and this is a great problem to have, is when you begin stalking discomfort because you're that obsessed with growth and progress and you recognize that most of it exists on the backside of pain and fear and doubt and struggle, so you begin seeking it out. And that's a, I say it's a good problem to have, but it can be a problem because it's very easy to get reckless and start operating without any strategy or without any tactics. And that can very easily lead to damage or regression or stagnation because you're 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 going too aggressive without any sort of operationalized approach to what you're doing. So there is a line, but you know, I think when you find that line, you're truly living at the edge of your capability. And the way that I define that line is the line between determination and madness. And there's a very thin razor margin that exists between obsession and reckless. But when you find it, even though it's a moving line, when you find it, that's when you're truly living at the edge of your capacity. Wow. I mean, that's just been delivered perfectly, Nick. Um, I think the only last thing I'd like to ask you really here today is just you're the first person in history to, to to have done what you've done. If there obviously I have quite a few veterans who come on the podcast and quite a few veteran listeners. If there was someone who had something very similar happen to them, like what happened to you, what kind of what would your advice be in terms of making this happen a second time, for example, and how would you begin to approach that? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. First is is you know nothing's going to happen fast enough. You know that going in. Nothing's going to happen fast enough. So there's going to be a degree of frustration that sets in. I think that that step one is identifying what the mission is. What is it that you're moving towards? What what's the what's the goal? What's the end game? Because if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So even if you make some sort of progress, you could easily be making progress towards something that you really don't want. Uh, so you know, have that really hard, honest, difficult at times conversation with yourself. You say, what do you want to do? Who do you want to become? And then listen and and engage in that internal dialogue and be honest with yourself. There's, there's zero upside in lying to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. What do you really want to do? Who do you really want to be? And plant a flag in the ground as a distant target, as a, as a, a guiding light, as an azimuth to begin moving towards and then just break that down into a series of objectives to get you from point A to point B. And oftentimes that's going to be met with a lot of doubt, both internally and externally. You're likely going to have to get really comfortable in isolation, both physically and metaphorically. This is what it takes. But I think it begins with figuring out what the mission is. That mission may change, but at least you have something in front of you, whether you can see it or not, even if it's just conceptual, you have something to begin working towards. And now you've got some intent and you can begin to deliver 
and create a strategy and some tactics and some short-term milestones in route to that intent. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect, mate. Um, I, I couldn't, I can put another word into that. I think that's absolutely perfect advice. And obviously I, I know you're here right now on the podcast and stuff, but you're also doing loads of public speaking stuff and you've got some great stuff happening on the social media front. So um, obviously four questions that's done for today, but before we wrap it up, shameless plug away, Nick, um, plug us into websites, books, everything you Instagram and stuff, you know, send my people where, uh, where we can find more of the machine. <laughs> Yeah, so the title of my book is Objective Secure, uh, which I'll tell you right now, if you're looking for an autobiography, look somewhere else, listen to some podcasts. It, it, Objective Secure is not an autobiography. In fact, that's the most productive negative feedback I receive is, hey, man, I really want like the story of you. And it's like, yeah, that's not what this is. There's, there's a bunch of little short vignettes and experiences that are in there really just to give some context. But Objective Secure... The subtitle is the battle-tested guide to goal achievement. And that's what it is. It really, it answers the, how did you do what you did question. And it's a process and methodology and philosophy and tools that, as you said, Louis, are applicable to anybody, regardless of your walk of life. This is not designed specifically for military personnel. In fact, it's, I find myself using those techniques now, perhaps more so as an entrepreneur and as a father and a husband than I am as a Green Beret. That's the book, but in the in the the one stop shop to get kind of all the things and the socials is as our website, which is teammachine.com. Machine is M C H N. It's got links to the socials, it's got links to the book, it's got the merch, it's got it's got a way to get a hold of me directly, which is something that I do handle personally. It's got business inquiries, all the stuff, man. So anyone interested, that that's where you go. Fantastic stuff, Nick. Um, very last thing I want to ask you as well for a little bit of trivia before we uh, before we wrap this up today is um, so on some of my past guest uh, episodes, I've asked if there's any kind of a slang term uh, or expression or something that we could take away and and uh, kind of nab from from the person or their their military unit. And um, from before, I've had a, a Top Gun graduate fighter pilot, and he's he's given me fights on, and uh, I've I've used that a hell of a lot. Uh, Dev grew Eddie Penny uh, in SEAL Team Six. He gave me own the room, and um, and those are two things I've lived by. I'm just wondering, is there any Green Beret kind of slang term expression or something that is kind of unique to you guys that are, that I can take away from here and uh, and put into my daily work ethic? The Quiet Professionals is kind of one of our pseudonyms, and I want to be very clear that there's a difference between quiet and silent. Uh, there's a difference between quiet and silent. This is something that I've had to kind of struggle with now the last few years as I've kind of gotten more exposed and more vulnerable and, and put myself out there into the public space. And, am I violating this this ethos? And it's something I'll likely continue to struggle with, but there is a difference. Uh, but the quiet professional at the end of the day really means that you are a man, you are a person of action and you stand by what you say and uh, you mean what you say and you do what you say and your actions speak louder than your words. Perfect. I'm going to take it, man. Thank you so much for that. And yeah, Nick, honestly, dude, thank you so much for joining me today for the Talk 4 podcast. I can only say it's just been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on. And um, and I'm inspired. I, I truly am, dude. I appreciate it, Louis. Thanks for the time, man. Episode 90, what, three? I think you just 93, said it was, man. Indeed. <laughs> 93. 
congrats. I know that's a grind. Uh, I can't say for sure if you've had a talent for this, but you certainly have developed a skill. And I know that th this, you make this look easier than it is, man. So I give you a lot of credit starting at zero, moving into one. Now you're in 93. I'm a fan. So, you know, if that, anything that I got from this is just that I, I'm now a fan listening to your work, brother. So I wish you the best of luck. I'll be listening. Keep grinding away. Oh man, that means literally the absolute world to me. And uh, yeah, the whole thing about the talent thing—I'm <laughs> not—I'm not not sure about that. Uh, sometimes I might go back to to episode one just for a, for a, a walk through memory lane, and I'll find uh, some pretty horrific stutters and <laughs> and things back there which just make me go oh my yeah, I god i and i thought i nailed this back then but yeah, i mean i tell you what it's um <laughs> it, if if i want to say my own little motivational thing as well something that i've been kind of harping on about a little bit recently is that going back to my early episodes i looked back at the very first time that i made a piece of artwork for one of these episodes and it was one of the promotional uh pictures in fact i'm going to stick it up on the screen right now for you guys but looking back at that and then looking at the quality difference from then to what I'm doing now, I can only say that I was no graphic designer. I was no podcaster when I started, but I started and I just kept making episodes and I kept designing and creating. And every single time I did it, it just got a little bit better. I listened to the feedback and I just kept trying to be a little bit better every day and fill that little 1% quota, which just got me mm -hmm. just better over this long period of time. And now when you look at episode one versus 93, it just blows me away how 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 far it's come. And I think that's just a true testament, even to, to someone like Nick here. You can see it. There's no way that what he did was anything quick or easy. But if you do something for it every damn day and you just fight towards that that goalpost that's in the future, it's just there's no way you can't improve. Any thoughts on that, Nick, before we sign off? Well said, man. No, I'm not even going to try to top that, bro. That was very well said, and I agree 100%. <laughs> thanks nick well i'll tell you what um podcasts are not design and improvements are not all i can say is that guys you make this happen this has been episode 93 and we're heading towards 100 and uh i don't know if it's going to happen yet but i'm going to reach out and see if it can but i'm hoping to have um for my 100th episode my very first guest back on again for a for a walk through memory lane and an improvement thing maybe nick nice. even knows him pat mcnamara uh t-mac maybe, maybe oh yeah heard of pat him. <laughs> hell yeah pat, great dude i would be awesome man. and now i'm actually gonna go back and listen to episode one because pat's pat's my boy good stuff <laughs> man well maybe start with like around the 50 mark before it, you know when it comes no no, no. <laughs> i'm going straight to one bro i'm going straight to one i'm gonna walk back i'm gonna walk forward in time <laughs> i love it so much oh guys well look uh, honestly thank you so much for for tuning in today it's been an absolute pleasure and if you're new to the channel i'm sure there's a few new people here just do me a, the favor leave a subscribe leave a like leave a comment i love to hear what you think about this show and uh and our incredible guest and obviously so many profound and insane people with great stories in the past too if i could recommend anyone i'd say kegan Call sign Smurf Gill, fighter pilot ejected at the speed of sound before his fighter jet hit the water. One of the most insane stories of survival and resilience I've ever heard. And um, I, I think that these are the stories that inspire the most. So, guys, like I said, subscribe, go and have a look at some of the other episodes. And all I can say is thank you for joining me today. Fights on, and see you next time. Good night. <laughs>